Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jack Hodgins. Today we'll be discussing the autism spectrum. We are joined by Professor Alison Lane from La Trobe University in Melbourne. With over 20 years of experience, Professor Lane has worked as an occupational therapist specialising in children on the autism spectrum. Hello Alison and welcome to the program. Hi Jack, thank you for having me. Autism Spectrum Australia has recently revised its findings on autism prevalence in Australia. The findings used to show that 1 in 100 people in Australia were on the autism spectrum, but now their findings show that actually 1 in 70 people are. That is statistically speaking over 1% of the nation's population. But what actually is autism, and is it something growing in prevalence, or are we just becoming more aware of it? So, Jack, I think that's a really good question, and I think the answer to that question is it's probably a combination of both. Um, that we are absolutely becoming more aware of it and um, being able to identify um, some of those concerns that uh, people with autism um, uh, talk to us about and tell us about and um, uh, identifying and we're, we're able, we're better able as a community, I think, to, to recognise those. So that's certainly part, playing part, um, a part in the increased um, prevalence of autism. Mm. But it doesn't explain all of it. And so I think the general consensus certainly within the scientific field is that there is a genuine increase as well that's not just related to awareness, but the reasons for that are unclear at this point. And what are some of the different types of autism on the spectrum? So... Um, in 2013, there was quite a, a marked shift in the way that autism was identified and diagnosed. So in the past, prior to 2013, there were a number of different categories of autism, and one of those um, was Asperger's syndrome. Um, and that those different categories don't officially exist anymore under the new um, diagnostic criteria. But rather now there's more description uh, based on severity of the symptoms that people experience. So um, there are uh, the core you know, issues that are associated with autism relate to uh, difficulties with social and communication skills and then also uh, difficulties with behaviours that might be repetitive or persistent you know, to the point where that starts to impact with um, functional um, performance. So, there, and then there are varying severities of those, how those symptoms are experienced. So, we tend to talk about types of autism now in terms of the severity of those symptoms rather than different like, classifications as such. Right. And um, should, would we still describe it as a, as a spectrum of sorts? I think so. I, I mean, I think, in fact, that's probably even more true now since the revision of the, the uh, guidelines, the diagnostic guidelines, so that you definitely get this sense of spectrum. You know, having said that, there's you know, that expression that you may have heard that you know, once you've met one person, you know, one autistic individual, you've met one autistic individual. The, you know, there is a great deal of heterogeneity or variance mm. in the way uh, different people experience autism. Uh, so, and, and then there are some other you know, issues that are uh, are associated with autism. So, uh, mental health issues, for example, uh, but also learning difficulties. So that can they can co-occur with autism, but they uh, affect people differently. So there's a lot of variance. 
What specifically is your background and uh, relationship with the autism spectrum? So my background is as a paediatric occupational therapist. So I've worked um, clinically in a variety of, of you know, settings, mostly with children and families with all sorts of um, developmental concerns and also within a medical field as well, so in, in hosp- uh, children's hospitals in the past as well. Um, my um, interaction, I guess, or my my experiences of um, working with children with autism and their family really come from a clinical perspective. So I uh, have worked with children with autism in school settings, but also in outpatient type um, work. Um, I came into academia um, in a research role about 15 years ago um, with the intent of really trying to firm up the evidence that we have as clinicians to support our practices. And that's where I became much more focused on, on working in the autism field and uh, trying to, I guess, offer my contributions to helping make our practices more effective, um, but also understanding what it is what are those functional difficulties that um, are of most concern? And uh, could you say that you've always had a passion for working with children on the spectrum? Definitely. I've, um, I, I enjoy my, my work, obviously. It's, it's one that's kept me um, engaged and interested for a long time. But I also feel that um, you know, the, the difficulties that families and, and children on the spectrum um, bring often to occupational therapists but any you know, trusted clinician uh, are tricky ones. They involve you know, some creative thinking and problem solving about you know, how can we you know, work within environments that uh, children are expected to learn in or, how, uh, or you know, make friends in, those kinds of things. How can we you know, find ways to help families and to help children on the on the spectrum to to do their daily living, um, and so as, you know, there's a lot of variance in that. As I explained, there's you know lots of differences in the way that um, autism impacts people, and so there's there's a lot of um, problem solving and thinking and collaborating that needs to happen in order to to figure out what the best pathway forward is. So. That, I find that interesting. I don't like doing the same thing twice, so it's, right. it's certainly kept me, um, you know, very happy in, in the work that I'm doing. Does gender make a difference to how someone on the spectrum will be affected? Yeah, that, that's also a really interesting question, and I guess the the quick answer to that is most likely. Um, you know, we we don't know as much about what's called the female phenotype um, relating to autism spectrum. Um, but again, that's something that's gaining a little bit more um, uh, interest and awareness, in, certainly in terms of the research field. And there is um, an indication that certainly females on the autism spectrum um, do experience their difficulties in a different way. Um, and so some of those differences might be um, in the relation to how they manage anxiety and um, emotion regulation. There's also some thoughts that um, females on the autism spectrum might actually spend quite a, a deal of emotional energy 
managing their social uh, engagement with others. So there's this term called masking or camouflaging where uh, the thought is that females with autism can do quite a degree of masking some of the social um, symptoms that they might ex- experience and that then the more masking that happens, then that's associated with you know, some, some more issues relating to, to mental health concerns. So there's definitely more to discover. Um, in, in terms of prevalence, females still are less likely to be diagnosed with autism than males, and I guess the the um, the question about that is that is that a true representation of of how autism is expressed across the um, diversity of gender, or is it more that we just haven't got to that point where we're um, able to recognise the signs as easily um, for females who who are on the autism spectrum? You're listening to Wellbeing, and we are discussing autism with Professor Alison Lane from La Trobe University. What does autism look like to someone that doesn't have it? That's a that's an interesting question. I I um, I'm not sure how to answer that. To be perfectly honest, Jack, I think that um, people are experienced by each other in many different ways, uh, but I guess. There are some things that might be useful for people to be aware of that might, you know, I guess, indicate um, you know, that somebody has autism. But I, I think it's you know, really it's about um, understanding that everybody moves through their lives and organises their, their daily routines in, in many different ways. And I guess one of the good things, I think, has come of increased awareness of autism is that there's recognition that there's a lot of difference in the way people um, express themselves. So I I think sometimes you will not that the general community will not notice anything at all. Um, uh, sometimes you may you may notice that somebody you know, has a preference for a particular work style or um, social style that you is is different from how they prefer to do things. So that may be that they have more sort of, I guess, uh, preferences for the way things are organised in their life or the way that they go about their their day. Um, But, yeah, as I said, I think there's so much diversity. I think that's kind of a hard question to answer, Mm. to be honest. According to 2017 data provided by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, over 50% of those on the spectrum had difficulties with communication, learning and social interaction. As a society, what are we doing well in terms of understanding and supporting those on the spectrum in an everyday context? It's another good question. Um, what are we doing well? I think you know, the, the increasing community awareness about autism, I think, uh, helps us be more tolerant as a society and as a community of differences in uh, language and communication styles. I, you know, I think these are these are questions that um, autistic individuals and their families are probably best placed to answer as well and note changes that they have seen, um, as you know, they are the ones who are who I guess are the receivers, I guess, of community support or, or not support. Um, I would like to think that as a community, there isn't as much um, 
stigma associated with um, being or having an identity that's associated you know, with autism. Um, I've certainly seen that change across my um, professional career in the and then and even as recently in the last five years where there's this real movement to claim uh, autism as an identity and as a uh, part of neurodiversity in the community and I think the voices of autistic adults in particular have really led that that charge and so I think there is greater acceptance of that um, in the community as that you know, that autism doesn't necessarily mean um, that um, there isn't a pathway to fulfilling life and engagement in community and engagement in meaningful activities that you know those things can coexist um, so um, yeah it, good question and you know I can give my perspective as a non-autistic individual and a professional in this field but I also think that you know autistic individuals and their families you know have important um, information to provide on that question. I actually do have um, Asperger's, um, uh, which is, I believe is on the um, autism spectrum, um, and, I, and I think I, I agree with you that um, in terms of community, we're doing really well. I've always felt supported and that the, the supports were there, and I think we're certainly getting better. That, that's really great to hear. I think schools are more aware, you know, and uh, are more tapped into certainly identifying and, and having conversations with with families and I'm not sure if that's been your experience too Jack but you know, again as a professional you know the, the conversations I have with teachers um, and support staff at schools you know, are more informed than they would have been in the past so I think that's a, that's a positive sign. I mean obviously there's always more right to be done mm. and I mm. think there's still a gap between you know, awareness and then being able to completely resource you know, our community, you know, whether it be at schools, whether it be employers, whether it be just community groups to, to be able to fully um, embrace and um, make, you know, make opportunities much more universally accessible, you know. I still think there's a ways to go, but obviously awareness and understanding is a, is a good first step. For parents of children with autism, it can be really testing and challenging at times. At approximately 22%, divorce is prevalent among parents with autistic children. What is different when raising a child with autism that parents with non-autistic children may not be aware of? Yeah, you've got some great questions today. Um, and you're right, you know, the, it's well known that the, and well documented that the burden of care or the, the degree of stress that um, um, parents of, of children on the autism spectrum experience, you know, essentially out, it outperforms any other parenting group, <laughs> including mm-hmm. parents of, of other you know, children who have other, uh, who, who are non-autistic but have developmental disabilities. Um, Look, you know, one would hope, hope that as we continue as a community to have greater understanding and awareness um, of autism, that maybe that statistic will start to change. 
um, because mm. I do think that a lot of the stress and the burden for families has been in struggling to find the support that they need um, and the support that their child needs. So, and or and to and find understanding. Um, so, my hope is that you, know, with this greater understanding, which will then you know, again hopefully be followed through with the resourcing models that are needed to to help schools and and other places work with families and children. That maybe that statistic will change. Yep. But I guess you know the other thing to acknowledge is that sometimes it can take a while in a young child's life to to figure out um, or to identify you know what the issues are. So families are usually very tapped into um, their child and instinctually, even if they don't know what the words are to explain that. But you know, there's good evidence to suggest that parents are aware of differences in their child's development in the first year of life. But the the average age for diagnosis or formal identification of autism in Australia is not until after three years of age. So there's you know, three years of, of um, concern there for families before they may you know, receive... Um, some kind of indication or pathway that they can then follow or access to supports. Now, you know, with the introduction of the NDIS, there are certainly some supports that can be provided earlier than diagnosis, but they may not always be as well targeted as if there had been that earlier identification of you know, the differences that you're seeing, you know, these are associated with the autism spectrum. Therefore, we think you know, these are the types of supports that might best match your needs. So, so I do think there's a, there's a journey that families follow where they're concerned about their child, they're concerned about the differences that they're seeing in their child, and it sometimes feels like it's a battle that they have to wage against the system in order to get those those issues identified and acknowledged and then the supports to flow from that. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. The other, the other thing to consider is that we know that um, the, the sorts of difficulties that are associated with being on the autism spectrum are tricky. Mm. <laughs> they, they're burdensome, so they may affect sleep quality, which in a young child, then affects a parent's sleep quality. Um, they may affect the ability of the family to engage in the social activities that they would normally expect to, and that may then isolate the family from social supports that they would have otherwise been able to access. Um, and, and it can involve, you know, quite a, a big difference between um, what the family was, the, the lifestyle, if you like, the family was expecting to lead and then the lifestyle that they are leading because of the, whether it's lack of understanding and awareness or just because it's, it's been, it's difficult to, um, the, you know, the accommodations and the supports they need to provide that child for, to do that type of social engagement, um, are prohibitive for 
you know, at that particular point. So I think there's a few things that play into that statistic. But as I said, I would hope that as we get better as a community in understanding and supporting families um, and young people on the autism spectrum, that maybe parenting burden will come down. You're listening to Wellbeing, and we are discussing autism with Professor Alison Lane from La Trobe University. In contrast to the struggles that come with being on the spectrum, there are also many successes. For example, Canadian actor and producer Dan Aykroyd has put the very existence of his 1984 screenplay Ghostbusters down to his Asperger's, more specifically his obsession with ghosts and law enforcement. Many other well-known and much-loved people from history have also been on the spectrum. What are some of the great attributes that those on the spectrum show? I think that's really true, and I think one of the things that has happened with increasing awareness is that um, a number of people who have you know, contributed greatly to whether it's knowledge or the arts or what have you have have been able to reflect on their own journeys and and you know later in life identify as being on the autism spectrum. Um, look, I think one of the things, one of the real superpowers that um, autistic individuals have is this uh, your ability to focus on detail and detail and persist with um, particular issues or, and you know, problems um, for longer than a non-autistic individual can. And the, the benefit of that is that it allows a really, um, it allows some tricky problems to be solved because mm. there's that greater tolerance staying with the problem for longer. And I actually think it was, uh, I'm going to probably not get this quote exactly right, but Albert Einstein made a comment at one point that that he the reason he felt he was more successful than others in solving some of these intractable problems was not it was just that he was prepared to stay with the problem longer. <laughs> mm, mm. So and I think I think that that kind of you know speaks to some of the strengths that um, autistic individuals can bring to you know generating new knowledge and discovering new knowledge but but also within that the arts to being able to shine a light on a particular issue or um, portray you know a social issue or a, you know, a, a particular element in a uh, in a different way and area the area of research that I'm mostly involved with is in sensory uh, issues with autistic individuals and there, there is good evidence to suggest that some individuals with autism have enhanced sensory perception in certain areas. And again, that can um, be a bit of a superpower in terms of things like the arts, for example, but also in detecting um, change or detecting differences in, in the sensory environment that might otherwise be missed but be quite important. So, look, I think there's there's a bunch of, of different you know, potential, um, I guess, strength areas uh, for individuals with autism, and I I think it, it's great to hear about you know those who have, um, as I said, you know, gone ahead in their lives and and um, contributed great things, and then be able to reflect on that and talk about how their autism may have contributed to that. I think those are some really great points, Alison, because I know for myself, as someone with Asperger's, that I've always felt like it was more of a superpower than a um, mm-hmm. than a burden. Would you say it makes you 
um, a good observer of the world? Would you think Definitely. that's one of your superpowers? Oh, yeah. You, you see things that perhaps others don't? Oh, definitely. I, 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 I've always thought it's always made me more aware, more than anything else. And, and look, I think that's such an important characteristic, <laughs> such an important <laughs> contribution. You know, we can, we can sort of, you know, power along with our own preconceptions on things. You know, a lot of our actions are based on prior experience and assumptions. So to have, you know, people in our midst and on, on our teams and in our lives who have got those keen observational powers is just who can see things for what they are and notice change and not be as um, bound by by assumption is is hugely important for a lot of reasons. Definitely. And um, we're almost out of time, um, but yep. uh, are there any points that you would like to um, bring up that have not yet been addressed? I'm doing some work and hope to do more work in the next 10 years to really figure out how we can both capture that superpower of, of sensory perception but also um, modify, I guess, or um, assist individuals on the spectrum to be um, uh, to help them manage the sensory environments that they need to be in. And um, we've got some interventions that are out there that um, uh, occupational therapists and others are using and there's pretty mixed evidence, to be honest, about mm. their effectiveness. Mm. Um, but the, the real problem that we have is that we just don't have enough data yet to be able to clearly say this one looks really promising but this one is not. You know, so, so there's a lot of work that we need to do um, to just continue adding data so that we can make better informed decisions and, and hopefully get better outcomes or help individuals on the spectrum to achieve their potential. Thank you, Alison, for shining a light today into the autism spectrum. We, uh, we appreciate you taking the time. That's not a problem. It's been a pleasure. My guest today was Professor Alison Lane from La Trobe University. Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Hodgins, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.